Welcome to Artistic Beginnings. I'm Mitch. And I'm Melody. We're siblings who grew up working in the entertainment industry and were deeply impacted by the arts. I'm a professional actor, singer, and dancer working in Los Angeles and New York, still pursuing an artistic career. I, on the other hand, am no longer pursuing that career. I went on to become a researcher, though I'm still involved in the creative industry. Artistic Beginnings is all about the winding artistic paths that creatives follow in their lives. We share these inspirational stories with you so that you can learn and grow as a creative. So, let's get into it. Hello! Welcome back to the Artistic Beginnings Podcast. Thank you, Melody. It's wonderful to be in podcast <laughs> land. Yes, pod, pod land, as we like to Cast call land. it. Cast land. I, I just realized because our like regular intro is pre-recorded, I haven't it's said pre-recorded? the name of our podcast. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I do it every week. Wouldn't it be hilarious if, like, the way that podcasts work is that anytime <laughs> someone plays the podcast, it's you actually talking to them, like it's live the whole yeah, time? Yeah, I can't tell you how tired I am of saying artistic <laughs> beginnings. <laughs> Sorry, that really, that really got yeah, me. Yeah, it pinched <laughs> your goat. Dick. Oh, oh, and God. now it's gonna be uh and the nope he illicit. says fuck so much oh, okay. Mitchell. he says it so much that's Fair why enough. i said it because i knew somebody who says fuck a lot in this episode <laughs> ari ari axelrod our guest <laughs> I, this no week. i believe it's ari fucking axelrod <laughs> ari fucking axelrod yeah he's a great um, guest ari is such yeah he's such a gem in this world i like I've only met him in person one or two times, but he I love him so much. He's so incredible and has such a cute dog. <laughs> the the real things that matter about Ari, his dog. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, he would I feel like he would be one of the first to say that that is a that is an important trait to his life is his dog. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Ari believes yeah, in his I dog. I can't wait for a text from him being like, what yeah, the fuck? What was this intro? <laughs> well, Ari has some really great conversation anyway. with us uh, in this episode, so I'm excited to listen to his stories. Yeah. Yes, and he has he has a really I feel like we say this often, but his his story is is really inspiring and really incredible um considering I don't want to give too much away. I guess you know what? Maybe we should just let him yeah. do it. Should Let's we just let him do let it. Let him do it. Great. This is Ari. Well, I think, you know, I before I had surgery, you know, all of these physical activities, this like yogic warming up, I was limited to, you know, if if I so much as dropped my chin to my chest, I would lose all sense of motor function in my in the left side of my body and I would get oh, sharp wow. shooting, burning. Oh yeah. Horrible nerve pain down my neck, my back, my arm, all the way into my fingertips. So if that was just, you know, drop your chin to your chest. So any warm-up that I learned in college, because I had surgery after my junior year, was coupled with some semblance of PTSD. And mm. I don't think that I have taken the time to find a new thing that works now that I am, you know, fully able. But the one that Jen Waldman does to start her classes at the studio, I like a lot. I like that one a lot, but that's not mine. 
It's not mine. Mm. <laughs> well, you can steal. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so after that experience, it, it seems like you started this, I, I guess you could call it like blog posts almost on, on your website, but they seem almost like poetic in the in the way that you write them. So I'm not sure a blog post is, <laughs> is, is uh, a poetic right. blog post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, oh, wow. they're, yeah, they're interesting short form kind of writing that, that you do. And, and I find them very interesting. How did that kind of start? <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I have to say you are the first person who has ever asked me about my blog. So <laughs> thank you. It's very new. I was for much of my life. I, you know, believed that I, I thought I wasn't a good reader, either because I had decided that for myself or because other people had told me that and I chose to believe them. So I, you know, didn't read. I mean, I, I read, but, you know, I, I didn't enjoy reading. I would always have to reread something and go back and start over, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So reading was very laborious. It was really just really fucking frustrating. And then my friends, I'd heard a lot of people who also consider themselves to be not readers say, you know, oh, but those Harry Potter books, they were just, I don't really read anything, but I loved those books. You should read mm -hmm. them. It's like, oh yeah, but like, I really hate reading. So like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to read the Harry Potter. Those are seven books that are, they're all long and they just get longer. And then two of my best friends said, you're not allowed back into our apartment until you finish the Harry Potter books because they're the biggest Harry Potter fans. So I started reading them and I could not put them down to the point where I would like cancel plans for an entire day to finish the Goblet of Fire. I mean, I can't put down the graveyard scene. You just can't. So in doing that, I realized that I not only was, you know, not a bad reader, but I loved reading. I always felt full after finishing, you know, felt like eating, like I was devouring text and then it would leave me feeling filled. And mm -hmm. I was having a conversation with Carly Valancey and I said, you know, I feel like I don't read in the way that people in the way that most people read, like, I feel like I equate the way other people read to like eating an entree. They read one book at a time from start to finish. They finish mm -hmm. the book and then they move on to another book. But I, since finishing the Harry Potter books with this newfound love of reading, it's like, I'm reading 10 books right now. I pick wow. one up. I read, you know, a couple of chapters. I put it down and I'm just kind of like, what am I in the mood for? And so I said, you know, I think it's like, it's like tapas reading. I'm like reading in small portions. And she said, that sounds like a blog post. You should write that blog post. I've never really written a blog before, but and then I thought, you know, I, I use my Instagram and my and my Facebook for, you know, places to post thoughts of mine on the world or, you know, to promote different ideas or questions. And, you know, I, I've heard from people that they really like my writing. So I thought, you know, what 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 would it look like if I sat down and wrote a blog on tapas reading? And mm. then it just felt like second nature. So that's how it's that's how it started. 
That's amazing. So yeah. as we start transitioning a little bit more into your backstory, getting a little bit of an understanding of how, how you started out in the arts, one of your blog posts, the Happiness Awards, I, I yes. really resonate with that one. And it really aligns well with Mel, Mel and I's mission of this podcast in particular, where it's kind of like, do what you love and you don't have to have a, a specific outcome for other people. It's more for, for yourself. And that's kind of what yeah. I was getting from that post. I'd love to turn around one of the questions that you have have in there for yourself and and say, what do you do, particularly in this time? I'm just going to take it word for word. I, I hope that's okay. What can you do daily to make your life worth more than any career benchmark or trophy? Well, I think that's a great question. Whoever wrote that? Um, <laughs> it is a great question. We can't take credit. See, we stole your question so you can steal that's Jen's warm-up. That's right. <laughs> I, well, I think now, I mean, I, I had COVID. I had the virus. So mm -hmm. I'm filling my days with meeting myself where I'm at and being as kind to myself as I possibly can. But I think if you look at at benchmarks right now, really any benchmark that anyone was tallying before COVID at this point don't like as harsh of a reality as it is they don't really matter because everything yeah. has stopped all of the hierarchies that we built or that were built for us and we were told as actors that we were not to challenge they're gone mm -hmm. I mean, look at Sondheim's birthday that yeah. everyone from you know um, Jake Gyllenhaal to Meryl Streep to Mandy Patinkin they're all on Zoom they are all doing what we are doing. So I feel kind of bad for the people who put the worth of their lives and their happiness was contingent upon these benchmarks that now don't matter. The industry and the world as it was is gone. So what I'm doing is what I've done since I had surgery five years ago is I'm living my life every day as if it were the last because we have no no control over time. And as Brene Brown says, time is our most precious non-renewable resource. Once it's gone, it's gone. So if we spend our time looking to the future, you know, once I get my equity card and once I get an agent or whatever, mm -hmm. none of which is in your control, by the way, you miss every single moment that's in front of you. You're looking beyond it. And now something like this happens and you look back at all the moments that you missed and what was it all for? So I'm spending my days now much like I spent my days before the pandemic. The only difference is I'm inside more and I can't see my friends and I'm not, you know, teaching my my clients in person, but I'm still taking every day as a gift, not as if it were a gift, but as that it is a gift. I mean, the fact that we are here at all, like the odds that, that the three of us us all exist is miraculous and scientifically almost impossible. But yet here we mm -hmm. are. And then the fact that we wake up every single day, like we think about what it means to go to sleep and to then wake up and to do that every single day, like that is miraculous. So I, I find it like it was such a wasted opportunity to not wake up every day and say, look, I here we are again. We get to try again. And, and I don't think that life stops or your quality of life has to disintegrate or decrease during this pandemic. If we stop living, then what are we giving the people who 
are fighting for their lives, we're not giving them anything to fight for. If we wait for, you know, the world to come after this pandemic and we stop living and we as artists stop creating, we're doing the nurses and the doctors and the people in the hospital beds a disservice by giving them nothing to fight for. Is that way of thinking the way you've always been? Or <laughs> was there no. so, like, oh, I'm very curious no. how you got there because, you know, I agree, but I also know that I did not think that way my whole life. I'm, I'm curious what sure. that turning point for you was. So, yeah, no, I definitely never thought like this before my surgery. I lived my life, you know, thinking about, well, when I'm 80, I'm going to grandkids and be old and senile in a <laughs> nursing home and it'll be great. Like I was, I was thinking, I mean, even more realistically, I, you know, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get my BFA. I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to do this, this, and this within the first five years. And I mean, all of this stuff, I really kind of almost very rarely lived moment to moment, but I, I had no problem. In fact, it was my default to kind of look ahead four or five, 10 years as, as if they were guaranteed a plan that was you know, that even if the plan didn't work out, the time, like whether or not those things actually happen within those 10 years, I never questioned whether or not those 10 years would happen, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the time was always guaranteed to me until my junior year of college. I woke up one morning with a really, really, this was actually my sophomore year. I woke up with a stiff neck. Like I'd slept wrong, kept thinking it was going to go away. Two weeks later, it kept getting worse. Then over the course of the next year, what went from, ooh, ow, pain went to, I can't feel anything. So you take a safety pin and poke my neck, my shoulder and my arm. I could not feel anything. And then one day, the beginning of my junior year of college, I was in voice and speech class and I had one of the worst vertigo episodes I've ever had in my entire life. And I had had vertigo for, you know, my whole life up until that point. But this one was excruciating. And for those of you who don't know what vertigo is, it's like you have the spins when you're drunk, when, when you're drunk and you close your eyes and you can feel the room spinning. It's like that, mm -hmm. but you're sober and it's times a hundred in intensity and yeah. it can last for days. So I went Went to urgent care and this random doctor at a random urgent care in a strip mall in St. Louis said, you know, you've been in for numbness in your arm and your neck and you've been in for dizziness before. I'm just going to do a CT scan to rule out the brain. I don't think it is the brain. But I'm just, I'm just going to see. So he did a CT scan. 20 minutes later, he comes back and he says, you have uh, what's called an Arnold Chiari malformation, which is where the cerebellum or the base of the brain protrudes into the hole at the bottom of the skull where the brainstem meets the spine. And he said, I can't help you. You need to see a neurosurgeon. You need to see a neurologist. That was in September. Mm -hmm. Saw a neurologist in February. The neurologist looked at my MRIs, said, holy shit, I can't help you. You need to see a neurosurgeon. Calls in the neurosurgeon. And the neurosurgeon says, the worrisome amount of cerebellar protrusion is five millimeters. Five millimeters, we start talking about surgery as an option. You don't have an option. Your cerebellum protrudes. 30 millimeters. Oh. So oh my you, God. you have to have surgery. And that was the turning point where I'd finally gotten an answer. And I mm. thought, okay, I have, and at that point, I still had six weeks left of school, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe six weeks. And if I had left school that year to have surgery, my school would have made me redo my entire junior year. 
which is in violation of oh so many moral and ethical yes. codes <laughs> not to mention title nine and all that stuff but wow. my surgeon said you can wait i don't advise it but if you don't want to have another year of school and in my mind it was like well i don't want to be here for another two you know an, an extra amount of time because i need to get to new york and do the right. thing and whatever yeah. But so the six weeks leading up to surgery was, I mean, that was really kind of like the brakes were, you know, slammed on the brakes when I got the diagnosis. And then those six weeks leading up to surgery was kind of that inertia of my entire life up until that point kind of catching up to me. And then I had the surgery and I woke up from surgery and I could feel that everything was okay for the first time in 21 years and that this was a second chance a new lease and so all of the things that i had missed looking forward i mean it it we all know we're going to die that's just inevitable but none of us know when it's going to happen and for a brain surgeon to say, you're 21, you're going to have very intense brain surgery on May 11 of this year. It's like putting an expiration date on your forehead. And I was walking around like, okay, 29 days, 26 days, 12 wow. days tomorrow. So I actually know what it feels like to live every day as though it was my last or as though they were numbered. So all of the time that I had spent before surgery, missing Every moment that came my way, I promised myself that's not going to happen this time. I'm not not going to have another moment where I look back at all the stuff that I didn't do or all of the things or the moments that I missed with regret. If I died right now, I would have absolutely zero regrets. I would be so proud of how I lived my life. And my hope is that people can feel this and have this way of living without brain surgery. Yeah, like that would be great. But how much better the world would be if we all were a little right? more present and, <laughs> and were a little more grateful. Yeah. So I'm really curious during this time and also beforehand, what your relationship with the arts was like, because you seem to have this plan b before your brain surgery. Was that something that was always the plan? Did it switch? And then during your brain surgery and that time, how was your relationship with the arts? Did you find solace in it? Were you kind of mad at it? What was what was that experience like? I started, oddly enough, so my brother's an actor and a, a writer as well. And he did this long before I did. I really, honestly, I really started doing this because my brother was doing it. And I wanted attention. I Same. wanted. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. I yeah, older brothers, seen. man. They're so helpful. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, you know, my brother's uh, six, eight and I'm, I'm six feet, but I always felt like I was literally and figuratively in his shadow, even though he's the mm. most supportive, brilliant, kind, generous person on the planet. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to feel validated. And I think it had something to do with my body and knowing something was wrong and saying something's wrong and, you know, no one knowing it or believing it or any of that stuff. So I think I craved the validation that, that I saw him getting when he was on stage. So mm. for very shallow reasons, that's why I started. And then I fell madly in love with it. I just couldn't get enough. and. 
before surgery, I don't really, I don't really think I had any sort of, the arts was something that I loved. I don't know if it necessarily provided any sort of feeling of coming home or solace or comfort. It was just, well, I really love this thing. I'm very passionate about it. After I had surgery that summer, so a month and a half later, my school, my college had a partnership with the St. Louis Cabaret Conference. And I had to cancel all of my plans for that summer because I didn't know what what my life was going to look like if I even had <laughs> right. one. And then I recovered exceptionally fast. And I looked at this cabaret conference that my professor had told me about. And on the faculty, I'm going to drop these names. I'll pick them up later. Was Faith Prince, <laughs> Christine Ebersol, Jason Robert Brown, Alex Rybeck, Ted Firth, Tisha McPhee, Michael Orland, just like unbelievable, unbelievable artists. And so I did that and I felt for the first time that I artistically had come home. I just, there was something about cabaret that made me feel like I was home. It really, it saved my life. It was the thing that as I was recovering emotionally from the surgery, it was the thing that I turned to. It was those those teachers, those mentors that I would, you know, kept in touch with and had conversations with. That the art, the art form, really, I'd never heard of it before. And it's being yourself on purpose, and to have an existential crisis to work it out by being yourself in the arts was really healing. So after that, when I got to New York, I started, you know. I got my equity card. I got an agent. I, you know, did the off-Broadway thing, but I was still doing cabaret. And that was really this newfound passion and deep love that I had. And since this quarantine, I've really kind of turned to that that art form and fallen in love with it all over again. And I've started this thing with Broadway World called Cabaret Corner, where I'm sitting down with these incredible leaders of that industry and just talking to them about the role that cabaret has played in their lives. And I don't know, there's just something really, really special about the intimacy of cabaret and that there's so much less ego. Mm -hmm. And so at this time to connect with people about an art form where they can really shed their ego and be themselves has been cathartic. I think for, you know, me and, and them and the people that I'm talking to. Hmm. So, so for your cabaret work, I, I don't have any experience with that. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of come up with new works that, that you put together and how that kind of process works for you? Yeah, well, I did a show about the Jewish influence on musical theater. And that one came about because I had a conversation with the head of Jewish studies at Eastern Michigan University. He'd brought a group of students on a trip to New York and I come in and talk to them and the two of us got drinks afterwards and we both love West Side Story. And, you know, I say, you know, the jet whistle is the sound of the shofar and all this stuff. And I was just Mm -hmm. rambling about how passionate I was about West Side Story and the Jewish influence. And he said, yeah, you should do a show about that, about the Jewish influence on musical theater. And I faced a lot of anti-Semitism in college. So I thought, who would want to see me talk about Judaism in musical theater? And he said, why don't you build this show? and you come to Eastern Michigan in the fall. I was like, oh, all right, great. So (laughs) 
I did it. And then the day after I did it that time, I emailed Jim Crusoe at Birdland. And I said, you know, I have, I've always wanted to do a show there. He said, what do you have? And I said, well, I have this other cabaret about my life and being an outsider and, you know, brain surgery. And he said, what else? I said, well, I just, you know, I just did a show about Jewish Broadway. He said, yeah, let's do that. So that really came about because someone asked me to build it. When I help my clients build a show, I say, let your subconscious guide the pen. So just sit down and make a list of 20 to 25 songs that for some reason they are on your mind. It's mm -hmm. either the song that you can't get out of your head or as soon as you're making a list, you know, your pen all of a sudden starts writing down Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell. And, you know, why? don't question it, just brain dump it on the page. And then the through line, the arc the theme will present itself after you kind of chisel away at that initial list. But cabaret is the intersection of interpretive artistry and creative artistry. And too often when building a show, people miss the forest for the trees when it comes to the creative element because they're creating it for a deadline for the venue mm -hmm. to get it up and make money. But there is some real euphoria and some real creative artistic expression that comes from building a show. So I always tell my clients to, again, as it seems to be the theme, don't let the moment pass you by. So you've mentioned your clients a couple of times, and you said earlier in a conversation that you're still working with them just remotely. How, how did you start taking on clients and why did you start doing that? So when I first moved to the city, I had taken the conference in St. Louis twice. And I had come to tell a, a, a very quick story, but I promise I'll answer your question. Uh, the first show that I did was about surgery and coming back to life and all of this stuff. And I did it in St. Louis the first time. I had graduated, I'd moved to New York, and I was back. And I was at my favorite breakfast place. I always ordered the same thing. It wasn't on the menu, but it was ridiculous. It was like a disgustingly stupid and meticulous order <laughs> and the one it was just like absurd what was the it woman, it was a breakfast burrito with eggs jonathan style two types of cheese on top bacon on the inside and potatoes extra crispy with no salsa it's just oh like, my god so, and i'm normally not Wait. like that at all i'm just the furthest thing from a picky eater when they did that burrito like that i still talk about it my mouth is watering it's my favorite what what are jonathan style so it's this restaurant in st louis called southwest diner and the owner's name is jonathan and he makes these eggs it's like scrambled eggs that are so fucking fluffy i don't know how he does it, it must be witchcraft <laughs> and it's they're like mixed in with hot sauce and like two types of cheese so like wow you put your fork in the egg and you and it, it's like a huge cheese pole with oh my god that sounds but it's amazing in, it's unbelievable it's unreal <laughs> <laughs> and I've never met him until I went back a couple of months ago. And I started crying. I shook his hand and I said, it is a real honor. And he said, this has never happened to me before. And I said, well, I have dreamt about this moment, sir. Thank you for your eggs. They are amazing. Oh, man. So I was at this restaurant. I ordered my fucked up order. And uh, <laughs> there's a woman sitting next to me at the counter. She somehow had gotten the exact same thing. 
I, I don't know how. So we bonded over that and then told her my story. She told me her story and said, what are you doing back in town? I told her I have this show. If you want to come see it, I have an extra ticket. I would really love for you to be there. And she said, I will think about it. Maybe. Mm. I said, all right. So I do the show. And afterwards, she comes up to me and she has tears in her eyes. She says, I wasn't supposed to be here. And I said, I know, but I'm so glad that you came. And she said, I think you misunderstand me. I was not supposed to be here at all. When I met you this morning, I had just come from another round of chemo and I went to my favorite restaurant. I had my favorite meal and that was going to be it. I was going to go home and end it because I, I just can't, I couldn't keep doing it anymore. But then I came and saw your show and to see somebody stand up there as themselves and be vulnerable and truthful about beating death and coming back to life, you have inspired me to keep fighting. Oh and God. so I heard from her a couple of years later, she's in remission. So oh, when I say that cabaret, when done well and thoughtfully and with purpose and intention and integrity, when I say that it has the power to change lives, I'm speaking literally. So that was my experience with cabaret. I come to New York and I see Broadway stars doing cabarets with titles like Because I Can. And mm. the whole thing was, here's my solo show. Somebody at some venue contacted me and said, you know, we'd really love for you to do a show. And here I am. I'm singing these songs because I can. And they're calling it a cabaret. And in my mind, I'm like... Well, this isn't a cabaret. I'd call this a masturbatory concert, but yes. it's not a cabaret. <laughs> and if we can be so specific as to whether or not the band's visit was a musical or a play with music, then I think we can afford to be that specific about cabarets versus concerts versus readings and reviews and showcases mm -hmm. just because there's a microphone and a piano in a small dark room does not make it a cabaret. And then I thought, well, but where would people have learned this? I learned it from the conference, but that's because my school had a partnership. There really is no formal training program for young working professionals in the musical theater world for cabaret education. So I thought, I'll do it. Why not? And I'd always loved teaching. I always wanted to teach. I thought if it doesn't work out in New York, I'll, you know, move back to the Midwest. West and get a master's degree and then teach at the collegiate level. But the first, I, I started my company, Bridging the Gap, in the summer of 2018. I had just quit my serving job a couple weeks earlier, and my first session had 10 students. It's a five-week course. We bring a guest teacher in in the fourth week, and then we have a showcase at Birdland. The first class had 10 students. Most of them were my friends that I recruited the shit out of and begged them to <laughs> you know, take a chance on this thing. And right before this pandemic started, I had two back-to-back one-off classes lined up and two, you know, recurring five-week-long classes scheduled. But it was really to kind of bridge the gap between musical theater and cabaret. The cabaret is more than just singing your audition book to a spot on the wall, but it's really being yourself on purpose and having a conversation with the audience. And I hadn't really seen that, but now I see it all the time. It's great. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that purpose behind that art is really impactful. Yeah. I mean, like just hearing your story, you know, you hear a lot about how a lot of artists are like, I want to impact the most amount of people as possible. And I want to have a big realm of influence. And then you hear these stories and that's when it really matters, right? When it's yeah. not, you're not pandering to like a larger audience, you're you're impacting the lives of those that are around you and whether right. you know it or not. And that's that's the true kind of value that the arts have where you may not know that that's where that that woman is at in her life but if right. it, it changes the way that her life is headed it's a, a definite value to the world that's right mm-hmm. i i don't know which book it is in judaism i don't know if it's the talmud or what but there is something that says it's either if you've saved one person's life you've saved the world maybe if it's if you've changed one person's life you've changed the world but you know i think if what you're doing is specific to one person it will be specific to all but if you are just trying to throw spaghetti at the wall and get as many people to do this thing as you possibly can you'll fail if it's unspecific to one it'll be unspecific to all but yeah i don't know that's the beauty about cabarets when you're singing you can really look a person in the eye and sing to them and really try and cultivate empathy with this artistic expression to change their corner of the world with them Mm, yeah Yeah. no i I love that (laughs) it's true Um, yeah I think that's something in the arts that a lot of people, sometimes they get a weird kind of blinder on where they're like, well, I just, I want to make an impact. I want to make an impact. And they miss Mm -hmm. all of the small, seemingly small impacts that they make along the way. Like it's, you know, if you just change one person's life, that's, that's enough for me personally. (laughs) Yeah. It's how can you be the pebble on the body of water? You just toss the pebble and watch the ripples eventually. By being one pebble, you will reach every single piece of that body of water. But you have to cast the stone first. But I, I you know, I just think that there are some people who, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's if if there's no purpose behind what you're doing. I mean, it's what Jen and Simon Sinek talk about. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. why you do what you do. If you can't answer why, if you're doing it just because you can, I I just, I don't see what the point is. What value does that bring to your life and to the world? This doesn't make sense to me. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to jump in before we get into our final questions to let you know where you can find Ari. Uh, So he made it so incredibly easy for you. It is a one-stop shop at his website, ariaxelrod.com. He has everything for cabaret, for students, for his professional life. So anything you want to know about him, you can find on his website. He also has his Facebook and Instagram links there as well. So uh, with that being said, let's jump into our final questions. So Ari, what is the hardest thing for you to think about pursuing the arts? Oh, fuck. Um... (laughs) (laughs) all right next question um (laughs) (laughs) what's the hardest thing for me about pursuing the arts wow um fuck you know i that i have no that's not it god damn it i don't know you know i've been really blessed i've been really blessed that it it hasn't been that difficult that i've been able to do what i've done with with relative ease i don't but the hardest part i mean 
Is there anything that you speak to your your students about that they either have blockers in their mind of getting to the next step or, or something that you kind of open up yes. their eyes to? Yeah, they don't feel like their story is worth telling or that anyone mm. would care. Yeah, I guess the hardest part is seeing people who have incredible stories, but who, because of the culture of our industry and the society that we live in, have been told that what they say, feel, and think is not important enough to share. That's really, 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 really heartbreaking. So yeah, I guess a lack of empowerment among the masses of actors. It's really painful. It's painful to see. That's the first time anyone has brought that up. And I, it's even kind of passed through my mind every once in a while. But yeah, it's, that is, it's very hard. It's very hard. Yeah. And you know, there are, there are, I mean, you can edit this out, but it's fucking true. You (laughs) watch the live streams on the Growing Studios Facebook page. And there are agents and casting directors who are telling actors that there's no work for us right now. To that, I say, no, no, there's no work for you right now. Yes. There's no work for <laughs> you, agents and casting directors, right now. We, we, our work never stops. But shame on you for allowing us to believe that our work is only worth something when there's a job to be booked. That's not yeah. why we're artists. We would be artists whether or not, you know, a casting director gave us the job or not. We would we never stop being artists. But mm-hmm. I, I, I just, that kind of top-down mentality to keep actors powerless, that's yeah. really hard. Even now during a pandemic. I mean, come on. Right. We're all unemployed. <laughs> just say there's no work for any of us. Don't say there's no work for us. Yeah. Fuck you. That's bullshit. <laughs> Oh, yeah. All right. Next question. Totally on a different uh, wavelength. (laughs) What is your favorite piece of art right now? The Lion by Benjamin Scheuer. Benjamin is a composer and a singer-songwriter who wrote a one-man show about his life. It was about his dad died when he was in high school. I think it was in high school. Yeah, so his kind of coming to terms with that. And then also, as a young man in his 20s, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so it's his one-man show kind of about what does it look like to take on the role of you know your father once he leaves but then I mean just that it's just brilliant like I can't Mm. possibly sum it up but he does have one of my not one of my favorite lyric in the entire musical theater canon which is truth gets revealed when you're broken and healed every heart is made stronger by scars it is unbelievable and it's on broadway hd so if you haven't watched it watch it it's an hour long it's just him and his guitars and it's amazing amazing another one that kind of gets even further away than the (laughs) from the other questions bring it um what keeps you up at night our president Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i just I can't, I can't watch the news anymore. I've started, Jen Waldman has inspired me to start reading the news instead of watching it, but I mm. just can't, I, I can't do it. And, and also, I mean, as a very, very proud and outspoken Jew, I know what it looks like for an administration to other people and make people feel like they do not belong. A history repeats itself. And I just... Yeah. 
it makes me sick how he says what he says and the fact that he will probably win again it just yeah it's heartbreaking isn't it yes yes it is yes it is not to compare trump to hitler but hitler was elected we do it all the time in our family (laughs) good i think you know the one thing that i you know my my mom's a holocaust educator so but the the Mm -hmm. one thing that i caution people is you know when they say that the the tents the tent city the the camps at the border mm-hmm. I, I used to see people you know comparing those children to Anne Frank or comparing those camps to Auschwitz like mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't I don't really love the pawning of the Jewish experience of the Holocaust for political gain today but I yeah, Trump and Hitler very similar. Both there are too many similarities. <laughs> and you know what really scares me? How the the only thing that needs to happen is for the military to support Trump, and we're all fucked. Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. long as the military puts country first, we're not as fucked as we could be. But just think about. I mean, that's what happened in Germany. You know. Mm-hmm. Hitler said something and then the tanks rolled through the towns and banging on doors and, you know, the Gestapo would come and take people out of their homes. I just, how terrifying would it be if the military blindly supported our president? Ooh, yep. that keeps me up at night. As it does most of us, I feel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oy. Yikes. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> To finish off our questions, <laughs> yeah. what one piece of advice would you give someone who wants to pursue the arts? What's one piece of advice that I would give to somebody who wants to pursue the arts? You must separate your career from your life. If you put your self-worth into this industry and into the art that you do, you will be miserable. But if you, how many, this is what I talk about in the the happiness awards that uh, what pharmacist do you know says, oh boy, I'm at Dwayne Reed, but I cannot wait until I'm promoted. Or I, you know, once I get that transfer to CVS, then I will be happy. Like Mm -hmm. that sounds, that sounds fucked up. That's ridiculous. But we as actors, we say all the time, or I hear people say all the time, when I get my equity card, I'll then be happy. Once I get my agent, then I will be happy. Once I get my Broadway show, I'll then be happy. You won't be. The first thing that happens once you get those things is what now? What's next? But if you fill your life, if you do things that give your life meaning and purpose and you allow your art to be fueled by your life and not the other way around you you will never lose you will mm-hmm. always win because you're putting yourself and your life in the driver's seat and also to do something every day that reminds you that you're alive because god forbid wake up one morning something happens and you look back and all you see is wasted time that's what i would say Hey, thanks for listening. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, www.artisticpodcast.com. If you liked the episode, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way to help people find our podcast and will help support the show. For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. See ya. (laughs) Sorry. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready.
Okay. Th- this episode brought to you by Southwest Diner. This is where you come in. Is it Johnson style eggs? It's Jonathan style Jonathan, eggs. Jonathan, why do I keep thinking Johnson? I don't Are know. you okay, wanting here. some cheesy fucking delicious eggs? <laughs> Are you in St. Louis? Yes, you should go to the Southwest Diner and get yourself some Jonathan style food. I don't know. Do you think it comes in like you can have it in any meal that has eggs? I would assume yeah. so. I'm pretty sure you can have it with anything that even contains eggs. So I'd yeah. imagine bread, um, pancakes. <laughs> Do pancakes have eggs? Pasta. <laughs> Jonathan style pasta. Jonathan Cheesy. style lava cake. <laughs> mm. It has eggs in it. Ooh. And a lot of cheese. Yeah. Oh, God. Ooh. So come so- on down to St. Louis. <laughs> Southwest <laughs> Diner. We're after, there. After the global pandemic, please. Stop oh, yeah. spreading Wait. coronavirus. <laughs> but if they do offer, uh, we should we should have checked this. But if they offer, oh, if they do delivery takeout or, or delivery. Yeah, yeah yes. uh, get Head on down. it. Yeah, yeah. But if you're from Louis. out of state, don't go yet. Yeah, all of this this sponsor is actually sponsored by Ari <laughs> Axelrod. No, it's sponsored by his dog. <laughs> What's Ari's dog's name? Hold on, I have to find. Oh it. no, you didn't know. No, I don't know it off the top of my head. Okay. Southwest Diner. Whoa, what? Hello? Did you hear the the ding dong? I did hear ding dong. Honestly, the ding dong scares the shit out of me. The ding dong scares the absolute bejesus out of me. The dog's name's Leo. I was gonna guess something like that, but I I didn't know the exact. I I didn't know the name. <laughs> I was going to get something like Leo. <laughs> well, this is the best commercial that we've ever done and the yeah. only one and potentially uh, the only sponsor we will ever have. And this is an unofficial <laughs> sponsor. They did not actually sponsor this. Yeah. Um, but we want to sponsor them. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so mom, go, go to Southwest <laughs> Diner. 